Good evening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have a lot to talk about. We're one night away from what will be the unofficial kickoff of Joe Biden's likely re-election run, also known as his State of the Union address. What case will he make to the nation to elect him to a second term? A lot of political types think it's not just what he says, it's how he appears. President Biden would be 82 if he wins re-election. He's already the oldest American president ever. Is that why so many people are still on the fence? Plus, LeBron James is on his way to breaking the NBA's all-time scoring record. Remember when he was advised to just shut up and dribble? He did not take that advice. Now he's just 36 points shy of Lakers legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record. We'll talk about it. This has been stressful at all? The chase? No, because it was never it was never a goal. It was never a journey. Um, you know, the stressful part for me is competing every single day. Also, nerve-wracking moments in the sky. First, it was the near miss at JFK when two planes packed with passengers nearly collided on the runway last month. That was a Delta flight. It had to abort its takeoff as an American Airlines flight crossed the runway right in front of it. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. Well, there was another near miss this weekend. A FedEx plane and a Southwest Airlines 737 came within 100 feet of each other. Experts say it was the pilot of the FedEx plane, not air traffic controllers, who averted disaster at the last possible moment. Southwest Center, confirm on the road. Well on that. Ten seconds. Southwest abort. FedEx is on the go. Turn right when able. Negative. Okay, here in studio with me to talk about all of this, we have CNN's famous John Berman, also political commentator S.E. Cup and cultural critic Kieran Mayo. Also joining us is former FAA safety inspector David Susi. David, I want to start with you. What was that? A hundred, they came within a hundred feet of each other, those two planes. What happened? How does that happen? I was so narrowly avoided. I mean, if the FedEx person had not, pilot had not been on the ball like he was, you got to understand when they're flying in like that and you're getting ready to land, you can't really see anything underneath you. He should have, he saw that as he was coming in and aborted his his touchdown just at the last few minutes, a hundred feet is not long. That that airplane itself, from ground to tail, is only about sixty feet itself. So a hundred feet is not far at all. This should not have happened. But David, I don't get it. How did it happen? I mean, isn't this what air traffic no. controllers are supposed to be avoiding? Yeah, they are, and they do have in most uh, airports. Thirty-five of the largest airports have an air uh, ground surface device that tells them where the airplanes are and where they're moving and when they're not moving. And this one, this airport does not have that. So that would have helped them, but you can't rely on that. You still have to make your decisions. The only thing I think could have happened here is the air traffic controller asked Southwest to take off and Southwest took a little longer than normal to actually hit the guns and go. So that could have caused the timing to be off, but it should never have been that close in the first place. If that airplane hadn't have Taken, oh, uh, made the go around. It would have landed right on top of that airplane. We would have had one of the worst aviation disasters on our hands. 
John Berman, are you aware that I'm a nervous flyer? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we talked about this? I can't imagine why. No, look, the way I look at this, you know, all the joy and comfort has been sucked out mm. of flying. I mean, you know, they don't give you leg room. They don't leave on time. They don't you give you peanuts anymore. No peanuts. The only thing left was to get you there, presumably, in one piece. And drunk. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> But, but now when you see this and you see what happened a few weeks ago, you're wondering if they're losing the thread even there. Yes, Essie? Listen, I, this is very unsettling. I am also a nervous flyer. And just the visual of being in a plane, knowing that could have just happened. But the good news is it is a really safe time to fly. Well, it it is still be. a I mean, very... I used to take heart in that, but it does feel as though these incidents, we've just seen a few of them in the past few months that are making It's true, but facts don't care, care about your feelings, Allison. And <laughs> it really is. Wow. <laughs> no, I get that because we hear these stories, but just because we're hearing them doesn't make them um, all, all that, um, you know, uh, uh, popular. In, in fact, it's a very safe time to fly, I talk to pilots, I talk to aviation experts. They say it's really hard for planes to crash these days. Um, so take take a little solace, take a little oh, heart. I normally it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell to a nervous flyer. I know, I know. I mean, Are who wants to hear? I have very much so. Very much so. And you have to do it. Like, we live in the world. we got to get around. But these things do not endear any no. kind of confidence. You, it makes you feel like I'm putting my life in these people's hands. And you are, by the way. And you are. I mean, and granted, everything mm-hmm. SE is saying, I'm sure, statistically, it's what it's always been. It's far more dangerous to get behind the wheel of a car. Yeah. However, mm-hmm. the lack of control, like we, ha- we already realize that we have no control on the plane. Can you just keep us naive and ignorant? <laughs> Do we have to know about the 100-foot distance? I can throw a ball 100 feet. I can't throw a ball. Like, I could have hit that plane out the window. That's But you know what I'm more worried about as a flyer, because I I travel a lot too. I'm more worried these days about my fellow travelers. Sure. And the freakouts that we're seeing on TikTok and Instagram. Well, if it gets less than 100 feet, it's going to take care of them too. Okay. All right. Let's not be fatalistic. But, like, I'm more worried about the people sitting next to me these days, which is awful, an awful thing to fear you know, yeah, the passenger next to you. I don't want to worry to about either one of them. No. And I totally Ideally. agree with you. But David, Essie's right, of course. I mean, air travel is yeah. safe. And it's much safer than driving. However, do you think these things are happening? Are there more near misses lately? Or is that just my imagination? Well, if it depends on the scope and what you look at it. If you looked back in 2016, there was maybe seven or eight of these that happened the entire year as we move forward. There were years of less and there were years of more. Uh, when they happen close together like this, it does tend to make everybody really nervous. But you have to realize there's tens of thousands of people that their entire job is trying to make this flight safe for you. And this is to, to tell you how many tiers of safety there are, including the air traffic control monitors that they have. But then again, each of the pilots is looking after the safety of the passengers on board. So the fact that this was a safe flight tells you even when things go wrong, there's very many tiers to make sure that something doesn't go deadly wrong. You know, you have to make sure that you understand that to be able to get on there and fly and understand how much safety and how many levels of safety there are to prevent these things from happening. And it is, it can worry you. I know I understand that. Um, Essie, by the way, facts do care about my feelings because here they are right now. I have a full screen of airline issues in just the past month. January 11th, FAA system outage. 
halts domestic air travel. That was also nerve-wracking. I don't like it when a whole system goes down. Okay? Sure, not, not a safety issue, but okay. Okay, yes. coming up, hold, yes. your, hold your jets. Okay, go ahead. Uh, January 17th, near collision at JFK Airport. We've That's talked fine. about that. February 3rd, United plane clips another plane. Harry. So that Newark. wasn't a near miss. That's that not was, good. That was an actual hit. hit. Okay. That was a hit, okay. February 5th, the near collision yeah. that we've been talking about at Austin. And if that isn't enough for you, Essie, just okay. look. I want you to show you the animation Oh, we did of how close they came to each other. Okay, so this is the FedEx plane trying to land, and here's this is the Southwest Airlines trying to take off. Watch this, please. Whoops, that's what happened. Right yeah, there. that's terrifying. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, yes, that's terrifying. Yes, I have to fly very soon. I am terrified of that happening now. And let's keep playing it over and over and over again so I don't sleep tonight. <laughs> okay, no, I won't do that. I, I won't play it. Oh, yes, I will. Here it yes, is. Yes, you will. Um, but, but, David, I know that you have also talked about how there's no FAA administrator. Um, but yes. that doesn't really affect, does, does that really affect what's happening on the ground? I mean, does that trickle? That's a suit in Washington, D.C. Does that really trickle down to what's happening on the runway? Yeah, you know, you think of these big broad scope things that might affect things. And in this case, it actually does, because you, you look at this uh, air surface detection system and it's only in 35 airports. Why is it not in more? And you look at the fact that the systems went down, the air traffic control systems or that the, the NOTAM system that went down. I really relate that directly to the fact that there's not there's been more interim FAA directors than there have been FAA directors in the last five to 10 years. So it's something to look at. And here's the reason that these systems take a long time to develop. They take six to 10 years to go through the life cycle, the development life cycle. And in those times, when you change administrators, the, the systems don't get the attention they need. They don't get the funding they need. It changes all the time. And so it's hard to get a system completely redone, redone and, cur stay and current. So they end up putting patches on old systems that were designed back in the 60s and 70s. And they keep putting these patches on them to make them safe. They're still safe, but they could be improved much uh, to be able to handle all the different changes in the complexity. This is immeasurably complex, as you can imagine. And there are a lot of people trying to make it safe. And it, again, it is the safest way to travel. There's no question. Can it be improved? And would it be improved by a, an administrator who's in the seat for more than four years? Absolutely. I, I've been touting that for many years, as you know, Allison. Yeah. I don't want to think there's gaffer's tape patching together yeah. my plane somewhere or even in the system. But I take your point, David. Uh, thank you for being a voice of reason with all of this. All right, yes. stick around, everybody. He's our oldest sitting president ever. And it looks like Joe Biden wants another four years. Can he convince America in the State of the Union address tomorrow night of why he should be reelected? All right, President Biden getting ready for the State of the Union address tomorrow night. It's his chance <clears throat> to sell the voters on a second term. So do voters want to hear about his many accomplishments or will they be focused on how he looks and sounds? Back with me, John Berman, Essie Cup, and Kierna Mayo. Um, John, what's the answer to that? Mm. I think it's a both. Look, I, I think that it's no secret that Joe Biden is not a young man at this point. And I think largely that's baked into the cake. I think Americans have come to accept they have a much older president of the United States. But every time he does a big public thing like this, I think people are watching. By and large, every time he's done a big public thing like this for which there's been planning, you know, it's a teleprompter speech. He has hit that mark in terms of his age. I think the bigger question for him is, 
is how does he approach this? Does he approach this as a launch for his 2024 presidential campaign? And if so, what is he running on? He has benefited, I think, largely politically for a few years now from instead of telling people what he's for, proving to people who he is not. Uh, he has sort of succeeded in opposition to things for years. And I'm curious if he continues to try to hit that mark, saying, well, at least I'm not these guys. But, I mean, he also does stand for unity. He talks about that a lot, building bridges. He talks about his accomplishments a lot. I mean, he, I don't think he only defines himself as not being Trump. I'm not saying he only defines himself as not being Trump. I think a lot of his political success has come from that. If you look at the midterms, where Democrats did better than I think people expected they would, I think that success came from not being Trump, not being some of the Republicans. I don't think it came from the infrastructure bill in whatever bipartisan, you know, omnibus things they got through. Hmm, truth. Not- yeah, messaging issues still, the Democrats not getting through. I beg to differ. I don't know that most lay people are paying much attention at all to any of the successes. I think they're just stuck on the fact that he's an old man. What and, could they do differently? Yeah, but I mean, you... you you do with what you have, right? So we have Joe Biden, so we're going with Joe Biden. But I think that fervor matters. Timing matters. Like we're in an age of media and things have to make sense and they have to click and they have to be pretty and they have to all the things. And I just feel I'm afraid um, that Joe Biden, not just because of the age, but because of the messaging and or the lack thereof, that he's just going to have a, a uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, listen, I... I often am on the air when Joe Biden is giving a speech. So mm-hmm. I am a captive audience. Yeah. I listen to more of Joe Biden's speeches than I think a lot of Americans do. Yeah. So it's not lack of messaging. I'm not sure where they're not hitting the mark and why his poll numbers aren't higher, because he definitely messages many times a week about his accomplishments. But I take your point, and yours, John, that it's not resonating. Yeah. Well, a couple things. I think one of the mistakes he made leading up to the midterms was he didn't completely read the room. He, he, he talked about the strong economy and how great the country was doing, and his numbers could have been right, but that's just not how a lot of people felt. And so to feel people's pain was a gift of Clinton's. I'm not sure it's a gift of Biden's. And tomorrow, I would hope that he would acknowledge that people are still feeling pinched at the pump and at the grocery store. He doesn't have to pretend that doesn't exist. I'd lean into it and say, we've got a lot of work to do. I would also, to John's point, keep making the contrast Mm -hmm. because the threat is still inside the House. And I think he would be wise to talk about not the things Republicans are going to do, the stuff they've already done and the stuff they want to do more of. Um, I would call out how asinine and crazy and extreme some of the stuff is that Republicans want to do. And I'd make the case, if I were Joe Biden, that I'm rational, common sense. I'm not going to blow the place down. I'm not here for the disruption or the destruction. I'm here to get us on the right track. That might be good enough of a message for a relaunch, if that's what tomorrow is partly about. We hope, we hope. I'm afraid that the vice president has been... Where? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. And so is that part of what will go into people's calculation for his, you know, if they are reelected? Listen, I mean, if you think about the coalition, right, the coalition, the the reason Biden is there is not because of a bunch of old white men. It's, It's everyone else. Right. But if everyone else is invisible in whatever's happening, positive or not, it's a problem for that core 
coalition that said, yeah, we're going to give you a shot. You know, I hate to say it, but representation absolutely matters. Obviously, the vice president is a very busy woman doing a lot of work, hard things that we're never going to know about. Why aren't we knowing about them? That is the question. And that's back to my point about messaging. Why don't we see her? Why don't we feel her? Why doesn't she have a platform in his administration where we can tangibly feel a black woman at work. But can I take a guess? And I don't know the answer, but, and I don't doubt that she's working hard. I'm not one of the people who's, oh, she's not doing anything. I think she's working very hard. Um, It feels to me like talking too much about Kamala or putting Kamala Harris up out front is somehow going to make Joe Biden uh, look less capable, look older, look less fresh, less new. And I just think that's, that sucks. I don't know. Because it's, she's part of why I voted for him. Yes. I'm a Republican. I voted for Joe Biden because I thought, well, he's not crazy and he wants to make America yeah. good again. But his vice president mattered. Yeah. He could have picked people that I would not have voted for. He picked Kamala and I thought, she's smart. She's not too progressive. Yeah. She's going to, you know, fix some problems. Yeah. You think you Where have, has she been? You think, you think they should put her out more? make her more of a public face of the administration? Do you think that would be good politics at this point? I want to hear more from her. And I feel like the reason they're not is to protect Joe Biden. And I think that kind of sucks. And I I just think that that if that is the play, it's a bad play because that doesn't protect him. It doesn't make him look like a partner. What we wanted in them was a partnership. And so that partnership matters. Do you have a theory on this? I I don't. I'm just I'm not sure it's because of fear of how it will make him look. I get the sense from the reporting that's been out there that they haven't been overwhelmed with joy in some of the things that she has uh, been out in front of, whether it be immigration mm-hmm. early on or other things. Um, but, but you know, I, I certainly think... Don't you think she can withstand questioning from the press? Certainly. Questioning from members of Congress about where she's been on those issues, uh, you, hiding her yes, ex- does her no service. Or him. The oh, Lester Holt yes, interview, though, early on with her, though, in that, you know, again, you're, sure. you, so the answer is yes, I, I think she could do very well from the press, but there is the perception in that big first sit-down interview yes. that she did do, she didn't do as well as they were well, she, was, she didn't answer honestly, and he yeah. pushed her on that. That was an appropriate yeah. relationship. All right, well, we shall see how they choose to play it tomorrow night. Okay, meanwhile, only 36 more to go. And with the Lakers playing tomorrow, LeBron James could be about to break the all-time scoring record for the NBA. As John knows, I'm a sports buff. (laughs) And so we're going to be talking a lot about this. This is basketball. This is basketball, John. And we're going to talk about his impact on and off the court next. LeBron James is 36 points away from breaking the NBA all-time scoring record. And tonight, the superstar who's being hailed as the GOAT is speaking out. Has this been stressful at all? The chase? No. Because it, it was never a goal. It was never a journey. Um, you know, the stressful part for me is competing every single day to try to bring home the Larry O'Brien trophy. Now, the Larry O'Brien trophy, as I can tell you, you may, if you don't know that reference, that's he's referencing the NBA championship trophy. 
with me now, John Berman, also professional tennis player, <laughs> professional something, okay. sportsman, uh, Patrick McEnroe. and Kieran, sports, and, it yeah, yeah, Okay, it's all the same to me, Patrick. Yeah. Okay, so joke over. I don't know that much about sports, but I do know that LeBron James is um, not, like, beyond mortal. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he is so, he's made of different stock. I know that much than any other athlete because he's about to do this. This was a record, as you well know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He said it uh, nearly 39 years ago in 1984. And back then, commentators like yourself Mm -hmm. thought it would never be broken. (laughs) And tomorrow night, it's probably going to be broken. Well, he's going to have to get 37 points to break it. And uh, it's been amazing to watch him do what he's done for so many years, LeBron James. And I think his commitment to being the best, to being the guy who he wants the ball in his hands when it matters. But I think what what I love the most about him, and of course he's always compared to Michael Jordan. If I had one game, John, I think I'm still going with MJ to, to get that bucket. But LeBron has been the ultimate team player, making guys around him better, wanting to be the guy who dishes when he has to, who passes the ball. You know, he's actually is now fourth all-time in assists. This is a guy who's yeah. six foot nine, who plays power forward, and he's got the fourth most assists. There's all point guards in this group, and there's LeBron James, not only going to be the, the, the greatest scorer, but one of the top so assists So why would players. you take Michael Jordan? Well, for one game, Jordan was the ultimate uh, in, in – in sports terms, assassin. You know, he won. He would beat you when he had to. LeBron, in some ways, has almost been too nice sometimes, you know, giving up the ball. Mm-hmm. That being said, he's won four NBA championships, and he's just dominated for now 20 years, which is five more years already than Jordan's been in the league. Okay, so this could happen on our watch tomorrow night, okay, because he's been averaging 32.2 points per game for the last five games. So that would put him, oh, no, he needs 36. So the next two games are in L.A. It's not a math thing, though. (laughs) Luckily, (laughs) luckily there won't be math. Look, it's here's the thing is LeBron James is is a generational talent. He's on the proverbial Mount Rushmore of basketball players, one of the greats ever. But he himself there, I think, described what this record means. And it's a lot, but not everything. Because in basketball, it really is about the championships combined with the greatness. And Jordan, in -hmm. addition to being the assassin, has six. LeBron has four. Bill Russell's got 11. Um, you know, so there are players who've got more rings than he has. And while he is no doubt the greatest player in the game today, mm-hmm. you know, if he's be- trying to be called the greatest ever, I don't think he is necessarily mm. the GOAT in basketball. I think most people would still say Michael Jordan. You know, you've, yeah. you've told me you are sports aficionado adjacent. Indeed, so indeed. Well, well, the first thing that I'm thinking of, I, I just have to push back when you're saying that he's not mortal. No? Because I think the thing that's very special about him is that he's so human. Well, tell me. He's tell, like, so tell me mortal. what makes him so I mean, human. He's, he's so much more than the game itself. I mean, really, this is a person who understands the magic of community. This is what we're talking yes. about when we say that kind of team dynamic, that he's always lifting up. About everything right? he's done and off so the court He does this well. on the court. He does this off the court. And he represents, I think, the, be- the what makes him the GOAT is that his character is aligned with his prowess. And really, to see someone this dedicated and this clear about his identity and this protective of his, like, black male body. He knows the body that he's in, and he respects it, and he understands from a political place and really from a personal place how much 
his representation matters mm-hmm. to so many. He, he so always just yeah, beyond. He, proud, he always excited. speaks out on important issues. Yes. which is so hugely important. But as a former athlete. What I also admire about him is his longevity, his commitment to being in the best possible. He he says that even when he was a teenager, he stretched before he went to bed and when he woke up in the morning. Now, I know this guy could do a little bit more of that for his running (laughs) regimen, but but that's why LeBron is still playing at the highest level at 38. And I think he's going to be able to do it for even a few more years. And let's remember... He went back to Cleveland. Remember, he left Cleveland, his hometown. Akron, Ohio is his home, where he has done so much for the community. And then he decided to leave Cleveland and go to Miami to win a couple rings, where he won two there. And then we know what he said? I'm going back to Cleveland. He went back there, and he brought them a championship, which they were craving in in all sports. Mm -hmm. Well, it's great to hear all of this, and I'm excited for tomorrow night. And you guys need to tune in because it really <laughs> can't. Is going to be breaking news? Are you guys yeah, going to play by play? She's good. I mean, this would be huge breaking news, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank yeah. you all. Okay. Next, another allegation against Congressman George Santos. We're going to tell you what he's being accused of this time. Well, a former prospective staffer is accusing Congressman George Santos of sexual harassment. Derek Myers alleging that Santos touched his groin late last month before inviting him to his home, saying his husband was out of town. Myers says he declined Santos's alleged advance. A few days later, he says Santos questioned him about his past work as a reporter. Now, Myers was charged last fall with wiretapping after publishing audio recorded by a source in a courtroom. The case is ongoing, but journalism advocacy groups have urged prosecutors to drop that charge. Myers says his job offer with the congressman was withdrawn on February 1st, although he'd already been working with Santos's office voluntarily. Santos responded to the allegations on Capitol Hill today, calling them comical. Tell me about Derek Myers and his uh, alleging that you made a wanted sexual against him. It's comical. If you deny the, the claim against you? Of course I deny the claim against him. Let me make Thank it very clear. Let me make it clear. Thank you. If there was remote any part of that that were true, he should have led with that and not begged for a job that we decide to pull for it from him for being accused of doing exactly what he did to us. And just a follow-up, so you categorically deny it? 100%. Hmm. Back with me, John Berman, Patrick McEnroe, and Kiernan Mayo. So, Kiernan, I mean, another day, another George Santos yeah. allegation or story. It's hard to give George Santos the benefit of the doubt. With this one, not that not that the accuser has offered any evidence, but at this point, why would we believe George? Well, first of all, the irony is that he said more about this than he said about anything (laughs) since the man has been elected to Congress. Um, But we're talking about a very sick puppy, Allison. This is not someone who at any point, at least from what we can tell in his history, has been well. So I'm wondering if at this point. His fellow Congress folk are bullying him by allowing him to exist in this meeting. The fact that he's there to me at this point. Well, what could they do? I mean, as you've heard, Kevin McCarthy and everybody else has said this is up to the voters. They have him for two years. Yeah, but if you were my friend and I were a crazy person like this, I would want you to pull my coat. They're allowing him to exist like this. They're not even scripting the man. So he's giving away his guilt in this case. It's like he's... He's so um, pissed that this person told on him. It almost seems like he's wearing the truth in his reaction. 
because he hasn't even given us this much reaction to anything. Yeah. Um, Patrick, it's so distracting. I mean, this has nothing to do with laws. It has nothing to do with representing his constituents. You know, you said you felt like you were jumping in on the sports talk. Like, I feel like I'm sort of jumping in with you experts on this topic. To me, this is the word that was was used by the congressman. This is comical. I mean, this is what, what, what are we become in this country that I guess is sort of understood that to a certain extent, politicians on both sides of the aisle, you know, they hedge, the, they fudge the truth but a little bit. Isn't he in a different this, category? Oh, yeah. Well, that's yes. what I'm saying. I mean, this he's is stolen so... funds from a dying dog. He's I mean, wanted yeah. in Brazil for check forgery. He's being accused of sexual harassment. He said his mother was in 9-11. Yeah, he said his grandparents point. were in the Holocaust. Yeah. This isn't just typical sort of the gumption, The gumption that this guy has, and he's walking around with the shades, with the shades. on and the look, like he's pulled Inside. this whole thing off. Yeah. He, it looks like, I mean, that's, to well, me, he just watching it, he has he's pulled, pulled it, it off. off. He's in Congress. Yeah. And he's somehow snowed Kevin McCarthy into thinking that he has nothing he can do, which is wrong, what by the way. The voters have no say in it now. But the only people who do have a say is Congress. Congress can push him out. They're the ones who decide who sits there at this point. They could expel him. They've chosen not to. These allegations against him, the new ones, the Ethics Committee will decide that. They'll stand on their own merits. You know, I, I have no idea what's going right. on there. However, as you both said, all of you have said, you can't give this guy the benefit of the doubt on everything because he's lied about almost everything. His finances are also curious. Um, as you guys know, he's being investigated for that. But one thing that has come to light today is he has his campaign spending, and this I actually respect, his campaign spending spent... $22,000 at an Italian restaurant. <laughs> now, I've tried to spend $22,000 at an Italian restaurant. It's hard to it's do that. It's a really good wine. But, I mean, uh, you have to drink a yeah, lot of wine <laughs> yeah. for that. But, I mean, he has this, like, profligate spending, but then he also couldn't pay his rent at times. I mean, he's so all over the map. And as you point out, Karen, when you elect a serial liar to Congress, yeah. what do you expect? I mean, we all know this guy from high school, right? Like, don't we all have a friend who was, like, Is that real? Did that really happen? And by senior year, we've decided enough with this guy. We're not going to keep listening to this ridiculousness. He's a waste of all of our time, really. Um, Here is yet another person who has claimed that George Santos tried to get him to invest in an alleged Ponzi scheme. Here's Christian Lopez. We went into this restaurant. We was greeted very, very good. Like we was family. And I've never stepped foot in there in my life. Neither has my lawyer or my girlfriend. So when we go in there, we get treated. We go to the second floor. And then it's just a big room with one table, a butler, and George Santos. And then right then and there, I was just like, what? Like, this is different. This is, this is nice. Like, wow. I've never been treated this nice before. That's the Italian restaurant where he's spent. Well, the butler. I just, I, mean, I just want to know more about the butler. You don't have a butler when you go out to, to <laughs> dinner? It's a follow. It's a natural follow-up question on the butler. I, I mean, it's all so bizarre. But, you know, again, I'm going to finish with the same point I started with. We, 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 we deserve this. We've let this happen in our government, in our Congress. We, I grew up very close to Congressional District 3, where George Santos is from. We've all let this happen. We've put these types of people in Congress, and we're reaping... They're, Wouldn't what are you, you say call he's a little bit further on the continuum uh, than I'm going to say he is, but you know what? We continue to go in that direction. People yeah. continue to go down these types of paths. And it, as John just so rightly pointed out, it's not up to the voters in that mm-hmm. area. It's up to the other members of Congress. What yeah. are they going to do? Yeah, if they don't want to wait two more yeah. years. 
Congress needs to step in. And I think that it reflects every time he walks through those doors, it reflects on them. It's less about him now, in my mind, than it is about them. You get vetted more to work at Amazon, McDonald's. Like, literally, there are places that you have to go through vetting just to get the job. Such a great point. And if any of us did... Half of the things that he did, we would be out of one a of job. the things. One, one of the things. Yes, yes one fair of the enough. things. All right, thank you very much, panel. Stick around because we need to talk about this. She got the most Grammy wins of all time. But what does Beyonce have to do to win Album of the Year? We're going to talk about that next. This is an honor. As we are witnessing history tonight, breaking the record for the most Grammy wins of all time. Be upstanding and show your respect. It's Renaissance, Beyonce. When she stood up, I was like, boy, I really hope it's Beyonce because that's going to be embarrassing. She has to sit down. They, she, they, I mean, as soon as he said, like, I'm honored, you know, they started yeah. standing up. It was such a great moment. She's now the most awarded artist in the history of the Grammys, 32 wins. That was the moment she made history when Renaissance won Best Dance Electronic Album. Back with me is John Berman, um, Patrick McEnroe, and Kieran Mayo. So, Kieran, the general consensus is that she was robbed, okay, of yeah. Album of the Year. And it wasn't the first time. It's the fourth time that she was robbed. And very interestingly, some of the Academy voters who make this decision explained in a Variety magazine why they didn't vote for her. And by the way, it had nothing to do with the The music of the album. So let me read to you what they said. Here's one who said, with Beyonce, the fact that every time she does something new, it's a big event and everyone's supposed to quake in their shoes. It's a little too, he said, portentous. He might mean pretentious. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Another one said, "Uh, I also look at who's been there and go, okay, Adele, Beyonce, they always win. It's the same people over and over. So I went for Lizzo. So in other words, she's too good to win is what they're saying. Yeah. She's she's penalized Penalized. for being the GOAT. She's actually, but before we get to the bad part, we got to just celebrate the win. Come on. I mean, Beyonce, 30 First of all, what it takes for anyone, the body of work that you have to have to be, to get 32 Grammys. Absolutely. Let's just talk about that. Absolutely. The body of work. Right. The woman's only 41 years old. So 32 Grammys, she's 41 years old. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. And it's, um, it's just a moment for everyone because I think there's so many Beyonce fans globally that have been waiting for her to be nominated in this way, like recognized as the GOAT. But the robbery, it's, it's real. Um, the Academy, the Recording Academy has long been known for having some issues, many of them along racial lines. But as we're seeing in this Variety article, like, who are these guys? Like, really, I'd rather someone who's listening to their music every day, all day, make these kinds of calls than someone who is actually reacting to Beyonce's ability to win all the time, to yeah. just simply be great. I, I just I feel- and I just also want to say I know that you know a lot about this from your reporting yes, yes, on yes. this family. Um, so does she does she feel slighted? Well, I don't know. You know, I, she didn't call me right after that. No, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I, she's so graceful that I don't think we would ever 
know, but I do know that she thanked her mother and her father. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was the whole story Mm -hmm. because you don't become a Beyonce without coming from a very rich place. And when I say rich, I don't mean monetarily. I mean like the culture and the love and the foundation. And the spirituality, like and God. Just all of it, all of it I think is just foundational to the moment. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally agree. I don't know, John, I guess I was just surprised to hear the the, uh, voters admit that she wins too much. That's why they're not going to vote for it. It seems like a dumb thing, right? And they admitted it. No, I mean, they just spelled it out right there. Look, I have to be honest, I don't fully understand and never have understood all the categories in the Grammys. There's best album, best record, best performance. Which best is song. which? What's best ha- song? What's happening? Which yes. one is it? I just want her to get the one that she wants. Yes. <laughs> okay, whichever one of those yes. is the most important to her, I want her to have. Well, I do too. And to, to that point, maybe it's not so much that award. I don't know because I don't know if it's important to her. But so many people mm-hmm. talked about how she was their inspiration yes. and they thanked her. So let's listen to Lizzo for a moment. Where are you at, Beyonce? My eyes are wet. <laughs> you changed my life. You, you sang that gospel medley, and the way you made me feel, I was like, I want to make people feel this way with my music. So thank you so much. You clearly are the artist of our lives. I love you. God bless y'all. That's beautiful. Well, I mean, we started with King James, and then there's Queen B, okay? And she's the queen. There's no doubt about it. You heard that from Lizzo. You heard that a couple years ago when Adele won the album of the year record. That's the one she wants, by the way. It's, I don't know if she wants. It's either record the album. her fans want the album, album or the record of the year. And she should have won it for Lemonade. Yes. And Adele wins it. She should have won it for Renaissance because of how she's moving music forward as an artist, all that she's doing. And she didn't win it. But you know what? As you said, she will never. She's so gracious. Yeah. She's so graceful. And she is the queen. And that is just the way it's going to be. And I'll tell you, uh, it was amazing to see her. I mean, she's got, you know, sports is objective, right? We could be objective. We could talk about Jordan's got six, LeBron's got four. In music and in the arts, there's a little bit of, it's subjective Definitely. a bit. So it's, it's hard to say definitively that this album, this artist was the best this year. But I think I might be able to say it about Queen B. She, she deserved it. On that note, that was excellent. And we don't have time to talk about Ben Affleck, I'm sorry. He was so unhappy. Well, he was so miserable. He, you know what? He's going to be unhappy that you're not talking about him just because he's unhappy all the time now. Well, I don't know if he's unhappy all the time or if he was just too hot and tired. You mean too hot, like like warm, or yeah. too hot, like... No, if he was just all guys sweating. Too hot. No, schwitzing. Yeah. Okay. supposed yeah. to keep it cool in there, but who knows? Yeah, I don't know. All right, thank you all. Meanwhile, we do have some new details about that spy balloon that was floating across the United States. But those details are revealing new questions, like has the balloon flown over the U.S. before? Why did no one notice then? Stay with us. Tonight, we have new details about other Chinese spy balloons over the United States in the past, just like the one that was shot out of the sky by fighter jets over the weekend. They just shot it. See the smoke coming from it? 
CNN got an exclusive look at a U.S. military intelligence report from last year that focused on Chinese spy balloon sightings during the Trump administration. It found that in 2019, one balloon circumnavigated the globe, drifting past Hawaii and across Florida at an altitude of roughly 65,000 feet. Here's what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told CNN's Casey Hunt about that discovery. Because the intelligence community made this a priority at the direction of President Biden, we enhanced our surveillance uh, of our territorial airspace. We enhanced our capacity to be able to detect things that the Trump administration was unable to detect. And we were also able to go back and look at the historical patterns. And that uh, led us to come to understand that during the Trump administration, as you said, there were multiple instances where these surveillance balloons traversed American airspace and American territory. Okay, let me bring in our guests now. We have CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, political commentators Errol Lewis and Scott Jennings, and national security analyst Sean Turner. Sean, I want to start with you. I don't understand. Can help us help us understand how the intel community can enhance their detection process and look into the past to see how many balloons floated over years ago. Yeah, Allison, it's 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 uh, clear to understand why it might be confusing. A lot of people are asking this question and 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 wondering if we had the information. How is it that the intelligence community was only able to produce a report last year that revealed that these balloons uh, flew over the United States? And I actually think there's a pretty good answer to that question. Uh, you know, look, when a new administration comes in, it's it's really it's not unusual for them to sit down and to take a hard look at our adversaries and to look at intelligence so we can better understand their tactics, understand what we don't know about the time when they were when when uh, that administration was out of office. And they look at two things that are really important, Allison. They look at finished intelligence reports. That is the intelligence that's already that's already been analyzed and, and, and summarized for for the president. But they also go back and they look at raw intelligence. And Allison, I will tell you that every time we look at raw intelligence, we learn something that we didn't know before. What we may be talking about here is a situation in which we simply had not analyzed the intelligence that would have revealed that these spy balloons flew, flew over the United States. During my time in the intelligence community, we always had more intelligence than we had analysts to, 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 to look at this stuff. So it's very possible that we just didn't see it. That's really interesting, Sean. So in other words, John, there was just too much intelligence and maybe it was an oversight and we didn't know that this was happening. So it's not, I mean, is it necessarily something that the intelligence community did wrong during the Trump administration or some things just have to fall through the cracks? No, I think Sean's on target. Uh, we served together at the same time in the director of national intelligence's office. And, uh, you know, sometimes these are iterative processes where you'll see these balloons or a signature on radar and then you'll find what the signature is and it's a balloon. But where is it crossing over? It's crossing over Florida. It's crossing over Texas. Our own NORTHCOM, Northern Command, uses the same model, same balloons, same surveillance gear um, to do uh, stationary and loitering counter-narcotics um, and human smuggling collection of intelligence on the border. So first we had to figure out, okay, do we know what this is? B, are we sure that's not us? C, what can we learn about it? And over time, they figure out these are Chinese products floating on big balloons that are gathering and sending information in real time. And then you get the analysts and the NGO and the uh, NRO and everybody, and they put together a report. 
Errol, what's amusing, if there is anything, it's that, you know, we, we talk a lot about all the high-tech ways that China could be infiltrating in terms of cyber attacks, in terms of even TikTok. This is as old-school, low-tech as it gets. Like it's been fly- going on since 1783 in the French Revolution, the Revolutionary War. They've been using <laughs> balloons for intel. I mean, is that, I don't even know how what to make of that. Is that comforting? Yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is it not comforting that we still miss it sometimes? Well, look, it's, it's comforting that we have an open enough system that people can acknowledge when there's a problem, that the intelligence community can tell the military folks, here's something you missed. We've got a real problem here. And for them to acknowledge on national television, hey, we didn't know this was happening. Uh, th- think about what the comparable reaction is in Beijing you know, where heads are surely rolling, and that might even be a literal kind of a statement. You know, when when we have um, this kind of a problem where 18th century technology apparently is evading all of our cyber defenses, clearly it's a time for a reset and a chance to, to, to look at this all over again. Scott, are you... Why are you giving me that? Um, I'm listening to your question. <laughs> no, I think you're skeptical. <laughs> no. But are you one of the people who thinks that the Biden administration should have taken steps to shoot it down sooner than it did? Well, that's certainly the, you know, whether we detect these things. I actually did think it was good that we acknowledged that we had missed them before. Now we can see them. That's, that's a good thing for people to know. I do think the Biden administration wasn't going to acknowledge it at all until the newspaper in Montana, you know, figured it out. Well, hold on a second. Let me, let me just challenge you on that because I think that they, I think Biden was briefed on it on Tuesday. I think the timeline is that he was briefed on it on Tuesday. I think CNN broke it on Thursday. I'm not sure when the Montana station did, but we broke it on Thursday. That's like 48 hours. You wanted him to tell the American people? And, I mean, can't presidents think about anything for 48 hours about what they're going to disclose in terms of intel? I mean, and, by, I gonna... and by the way, I mean, what good do we do you know, everything we learn, shouting it out to everybody in the world while we're trying to figure out what action to take or not take. Well, A, it was over American soil. B, people apparently could look up and see it. So, I mean, I do think it's a legitimate question about uh, whether you should disclose. The big debate here and the ongoing political debate will be about whether they should have shot it down earlier than they did. And I think that's really the, the ongoing political embarrassment for Biden is that this thing sat over the United States for a few days and then they finally shot it down but, when it was that over argument, the But, I mean, their argument is they had to wait for it to be over water because the debris does scatter over something like six miles. You can tell me, John. But, I mean, they, would you have rather it fell on someone's head? If we've picked it up over the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. And, I mean, there's a lot of country out there. There ain't too many people and a lot of trees and maybe a few animals and birds, and that's it. I, I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm not here to second-guess anybody. I'm just telling you the average person looks at this and says, we let this thing fly all the way over the United States before we took action against it. It does seem a little weird to the average person. I mean, I have to be the contrarian here because I've been listening to that since it crossed in from Canada. And you have to think of this like an intelligence officer, which is, what do we have here? Is it a threat? Has it got a missile on it? Is it spreading anthrax? No. We have intelligence reporting. We've seen it before. We figured out what it is. We know what it is now. There's two things to do. One, it's a threat because it's gathering intelligence. But Nobody disagrees. It can't really see anything that they can't see from a satellite. It can last longer and, and maybe look closer. But the key is, then what is the advantage of letting it go? And if you're thinking of it as an intelligence officer, you're saying, it's their collection platform. Let's make it our collection platform. Can we get its telemetry? Can we see what it's sending? And now can that we've we blown it up and it's, 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 it's scattered into a million pieces, can we still do that? So we can pick up the pieces. It's going to OTD uh, at the FBI in Washington, Operation Technology Division. Um, they're going to put the pieces together and see what they recognize, because this is the same stuff they build there. 
um, with a lot of partners from other agencies. But the key is, will they be able to find something um, that collected data that can be repaired or downloaded? And that is why it's a bit of a collection platform. If it's here, let's take advantage of it. Sean, do you have any thoughts on that? Number one, if the Intel community could have assessed what it was to shoot it down earlier, and if they'll be able to glean actual valuable stuff now that it's in the middle of the ocean in a million pieces? Yeah, you know, on this uh, on this question of shooting it down earlier, I, I mean, as I think as John said here, look, we had to stop and think. Anyone who's saying, you know, shoot first and ask questions later, not only is it true that we would have been asking questions today about why we didn't consider the ramifications for people on the ground, but also... When we think about shooting this this down, we 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 want to be able to collect as much information about it as possible. So where we shoot it down matters. So I, I think that what people have to understand is that this balloon did not traverse across the United States without the uh, the U.S. government putting some measures in place to make sure that we were protecting sensitive information. I think that's the first misnomer is that we just sort of let this thing float across the country and, and collect information. Uh, but now that uh, that we have it, I do think there's an opportunity for us to uh, learn something about China's tradecraft. Uh, the one thing I, I think that uh, we should note, too, is that you know one of the things that we do in the intelligence community is uh, we prepare for the possibility that some of our sensitive uh, technology might fall into the hands of others. And uh, sometimes what we do is we build in ways to uh, prevent them from learning from that. So it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not once the Chinese realize that this uh, this balloon wasn't coming home, whether or not they took some measures to protect uh, whatever information was being sent back or whatever technologies in that balloon. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks for all of those different perspectives. Okay, now to this. People in one Atlanta neighborhood are waking up to their driveways being littered with anti-Semitic flyers. What's driving the rise in hate and what are they doing about it? People in suburban Atlanta woke up on Sunday to find anti-Semitic messages and images on flyers waiting in their driveways. One of those people was Georgia State Representative Esther Panich, who tweeted images out of the flyers, and she joins us now. Representative, thanks so much for being here. Tell us what happened on Sunday when you went out to your driveway and what those looked like. Well, my husband actually went out to get the newspaper. We were drinking our Sunday coffee. He came back in and told me that there were uh, since there was some anti-Semitic material at the bottom of our driveway. I put on my jacket, went to go look, and sure enough, there were three little packages, baggies with unpopped corn kernels and, um, and these vile flyers mm-hmm. that were inside each baggie. Right. So we see the vile messages. Why are there corn kernels in there? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I don't ascribe logic to irrational behavior. So I have no idea. Yeah. Um, And what were your thoughts when you discovered those? Essentially, I had heard that this had been happening in other neighborhoods over the last few months. So really, it just, it was my turn. Uh, It was my neighborhood. It was my turn. And I called the police, made a report, and I texted my neighbor to see if it happened to her home and found out she wasn't in town. So then I started, I put it out on social media and I started hearing that it was happening in other neighborhoods. Also, when I called the police, Sandy Springs, the dispatcher told me that they had been receiving reports. So I knew it had already been in Sandy Springs and I heard it was in our neighboring community in Dunwoody. 
um, and had already heard that it had been in neighboring counties in the months before. So I wasn't surprised that because I had already been aware it was happening. I was just resigned at that point that it was happening in my neighborhood. Do you know how many people? Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. I, I, uh, of course you were. Um, do you know how many people received things like this? No, I mean, only anecdotally. I don't have the numbers from law enforcement, but my husband then went to take our dog for a walk later in the day and saw about 50. He says about 50 in neighbor neighborhoods. So we didn't take a, a formal count, but it was a lot. I mean, I would say it's hundreds over the last few months. After you discovered it, you tweeted out, welcome to being a Jew in Georgia. My driveway this morning, uh, Sandy Springs the police department came and took for testing. Govern yourselves accordingly, GDL and anti-Semites who seek to harm, intimidate Jews in Georgia. I'm coming for you with the weight of the state behind me. There's a lot there, Representative. When you say welcome to being a Jew in Georgia, meaning this something like this has happened before? Well, it had been happening before. It had been happening over a period of months. But anti-Semitism is rising in Georgia. That's one of the reasons I decided to run for office. There would be no Jewish representation in Georgia if I hadn't run. And uh, incidents had been rising. Extremism had been rising. And so if it wasn't, if I wasn't going to do anything about it, someone had to. So it, it was going to be me. And um, we have to put our foot down. We have to stop it. It's it, we know as Jews what happens when people don't stop it. So and it's not just up to us to stop it. We're not big enough to stop it num- numerically. We need allies to help us to stop it. But when you say govern yourselves accordingly, GDL, that's the Goyam Defense League. Who are they? Is that who you think is behind this? Well, that's who's written on the flyers. I really don't want to give them any notoriety because they thrive on it. Uh, but it's, yeah, these are well, uh, these are organizations. These are not kids doing one-off things. These are organizations that try to recruit members into their hate groups in order to terrorize and intimidate Jewish people. A friend of mine tweeted, it texted me that her survivor, Holocaust survivor father received this. I mean, can you imagine Uh, somebody who survived the Nazis has to deal with this in their home? I mean, how awful is that? So we have to try to put a stop to it. Georgia is actually on the cusp of hopefully passing a bill to define anti-Semitism. Part of the problem is we have no definition for anti-Semitism in Georgia. 30 other states in this country have defined anti-Semitism. But in Georgia, if you commit a crime and you commit a a crime, not, not speech, but if you commit a crime and it happens to be against a Jewish person, and you express intent to do it against a Jewish person, there's no way, there's no set definition of anti-Semitism. So if you do something against a Jewish person and they say, oh, you, you did it because they're Jewish, they could say, no, it wasn't against their religion. It was just against their ethnicity mm-hmm. or it was against something that happened in Israel that this person had n- nothing to do with. So, but that's a defense. So until we can define what anti-Semitism is, you can't protect Jews as much as they as we deserve to be protected. Well, I mean, that's why I was going to ask you about in your tweet where you say the I'm coming for you with the weight of the state behind me. Are you? I mean, in the fact that that I mean, what does that mean and look like? To me, that means 
if you commit a crime against Jews, be motivated by hatred towards Jews, you're going to get prosecuted for a crime, a hate crime. Georgia passed this hate crime bill over the last couple of years because of what happened in Ahmaud Arbery. He was targeted because he was black. If you're gonna target Jews because they're Jews, you're gonna get punished for it too. There's gonna to be enhanced punishment. And if you're gonna discriminate against Jews because they're Jews, you're gonna be punished for it. And so Representative, the fact that you are the only Jewish member of the state legislature, should we be surprised by that? I'm underrepresented. Jewish people are underrepresented in government in Georgia. Uh, so obviously representation matters and we need more voices in government. So every minority group des deserves to have representation in government. And at the moment, we're just underrepresented. So, but while I'm alone, and it's a little lonely, I'm, I'm not really alone. We have allies. We have a lot of allies. Today, I went and stood at the well and addressed the House of Representatives. Normally, a few people come up and stand with whoever is speaking in solidarity for any particular issue. Today, most of the House came up and stood with me. It was amazing. And the speaker gave such a passionate speech at the beginning of the session to say that everybody stands with me. In fact, so many people started to come up that the speaker asked some people to kind of to stay behind. So I would have someone to speak to because otherwise I'd have to turn around and speak to my colleagues who were standing behind me. So it was really overwhelming at the amount of support and love that I got from my colleagues who are all lawmakers. It was really something to say about how far Georgia has come uh, in the last century uh, because it wasn't always so friendly to Jewish people. Well, I'm comforted and heartened to hear about all of the support that you had uh, in speaking today. So thank you for this story. And obviously, we'll be watching closely what happens in Georgia. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Esther Panich. And John Miller and Scott Jennings are back now. Joining us also is New York Times business reporter Emma Goldberg. Great to have all of you. So it's not just Georgia, obviously. I'll just pull up. Um, a little graphic we have of some of the recent anti-Semitic incidents across the United States. So as you may remember, um, we just talked about the flyers in the Atlanta suburb. Then there were also these banners over the Los Angeles freeway. That was in on October 23rd. There was a projection in Jacksonville, Florida, I believe on the side of a building saying Kanye was right. Um, and then meaning about the Jews. And then there was a Molotov cocktail at a New Jersey synagogue, January 29th. I mean, those are just some fairly recent ones. So Emma, you see this as part of a larger piece with the resurgence of white nationalism. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's alarming. As a Jewish person, you grow up in the United States thinking anti-Semitism sounds like something very foreign and far away in time and place. And so to hear those words, welcome to being a Jew in Georgia, is terrifying. Um, I do think it's, it's important that we step back and understand the broader phenomenon that's contributing to this. Um, anti-Semitism is part and parcel of a broader white supremacist, white nationalist movement. I think there, you know, there's been extensive research that shows that um, anti-Semitism is animated by white nationalism. It contributes to it. It's fueled by the growth of this broader movement that's been emboldened in recent years. And I mean, you can look at the numbers. There is a hate crime that occurs every hour in the U.S. 
and there's been a 100% growth of, of hate groups in the last 20 years in the country. So I think when we see all these very visible manifestations of hatred toward Jews, it's important to also ask, how do we think about countering white supremacy writ large? Because it is part of that ideology. I mean, John, it, look, it feels so overwhelming. I mean, we'll get to the point that it's not just in the United States, but just in the United States, all of these different incidents. As a law enforcement guy, this must be really daunting. Well, I mean, we saw this creeping up um, a few years ago with uh, Identity Europa um, and groups like that that were doing uh, stickering on, on lampposts and flyering in Jersey City and Staten Island um, with uh, anti-Semitic messages. And we're thinking, but, you know, this is New York in like 2018, 2019. Where is this coming from? But then you see... Um, you know, the QAnon movement, which is alive um, online with, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, uh, anti-Semitism and Jewish tropes flow through that as part of the, the theme there. You look at um, the fact that you had the Unite the Right rally in Charlotte, where all these groups came together out in the open, not hiding their faces, marching with torches. And you remember, we're, we're still in the new millennium when this is happening. And at the time, the president of the United States of America said, well, there were good people on both sides after someone rammed their car into the anti-white uh, supremacist protesters. And now you fast forward to the other day and you've got Nick Fuentes, an avowed Holocaust denier and anti-Semite, you know, at Mar-a-Lago breaking bread. It's not just a Trump thing, but it's a movement that is getting kind of a... Uh, a pass or a tacit approval um, at levels, you know, of the government and society that really um, validates it yeah. in a scary way. Yes. And I mean, I don't know if that's what lit the stick of dynamite, but it sure didn't help extinguish it. I mean, to to your point that that's not helpful. So here are some of the, the numbers. And Scott. you got to throw in Kanye, which is a cultural crossover, which just throws you for a loop but it's very powerful. Absolutely. I mean, he has a, a millions of followers. So the anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. reached an all-time high in 2021. There were 2,717 incidents. That's a 34% increase year over year. And then in terms of the tropes um, that John was just talking about, in 2019, 61% of respondents believed one, at least one anti-Jewish trope. Now it's up to 85% this year. And similarly, if you believe six or more, it was 11% in 2019. Now it's 20%. So what do you think is happening here and what's the answer? I don't know what the macro answer is. I know what the micro answer is, that every single one of us who has any kind of responsibility anywhere in our lives where we interact with people who need to hear the truth have responsibility to tell it. And we also, if we're political people, to your point, we have responsibility not to interact with the people and to elevate the people who are spreading this. And that's what Donald Trump did when he had, you know, that meal uh, with that with that white nationalist and that person that you mentioned. And so we all have that micro responsibility. I don't know if that will add up to the macro solution because it is global. Uh, I was reading a report from the Jewish government from a couple of years ago. They had put out about the rising anti-Semitism in Europe, Germany, France. You know, lots of different countries are experiencing this. So obviously this is not isolated. It's not just the United States. Uh, and it's not history. I think that what you said uh, really was a powerful thing. This is this is real. It's happening right now. And when you have uh, groups of people who can communicate with each other all over the world, it can spread very rapidly. And it's extremely dangerous, as we've seen from these things in the United States. So it's extremely worrisome. Everybody 
and every part of our political spectrum has responsibility here. So on that note, up next, we're going to tell you about how the Justice Department says that this neo-Nazi leader and a Maryland woman allegedly plotted to destroy Baltimore. We have new reporting on this. A neo-Nazi and a Maryland woman charged tonight with what the DOJ is calling a racially motivated plot to, quote, completely destroy the city of Baltimore. Federal authorities allege the duo were planning to attack electrical substations. Experts warn that more extremist groups are targeting U.S. power facilities as possible targets. We're back now with John Miller, Emma Goldberg and Errol Lewis. John, what new reporting do you have on what happened here? Well, as we reported last week um, on CNN, we've seen a big increase in 2022 on attacks on power stations, substations across the country. I think 25 confirmed attacks on power facilities in 2022. Right. And some of these are gunfire, sniper, sabotage, vandalism. But at the same time, in those same neo-Nazi white nationalist channels on the Internet, they are putting out, literally putting out playbooks saying we've got to bring down the power grid because if we hit the right eight or nine places, we can have a cascading um, collapse, which will plunge the United States into a prolonged blackout, which they hope is the catalyst for the beginning of riots and looting and things the government can't fix and the race war and then finally the fall of society and their rise to white power. But the new development today, of course, is the arrest of Brandon Russell, the former head of the Atomwaffen Division, now running something called the New Socialist Order. He was out on supervised release from his conviction after a plea of guilty for possession of explosives and planning to blow up the power grid in Florida hmm. um, when he found Sarah Beth Clan Daniel, who um, conspired with him and a third individual who was an FBI source online to attack multiple power plants around Baltimore to plunge the city into prolonged blackout. Maybe we should give these guys longer prison sentences so they're not out on supervised release to uh, be able to do this. But Errol, I mean, you know, this is this affects all of us. This is scary. It affects all of us. They're, they are targeting these things, and they may not be the brightest people, but they are. It's working. They are actually attacking these power groups. They are, uh, and they're trying to uh, foment terrorism and mayhem and, and murder and so forth. And while we may think that it's remote because some of them happen to be idiots. Uh, the, the reality is uh, a successful blackout can cause billions of dollars worth of damage. And that can happen, you know, due to, due to a lightning strike. So, you know, clearly it is time to talk to Florida Power and Light, PSE&G, PG&E, Con Edison, all of the, 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 the uh, po- private power companies that provide 65 percent of the power in this country and tell them, you've got a new expense. You're going to have to go to the ratepayers. Maybe you go to the government. Maybe you go to the, your, your hedge funds, your sovereign wealth funds, the pension funds that invest in you. But you've got to harden these facilities. You cannot just leave substations out there for these Nazis to take shots at. And just a key off of Errol, I mean, there's 6,400 power stations with 55,000 substations owned by 3,000 companies in 50 states in 3,030 counties, none of them are regulated by any single body that sets the standards on a national level. 
So it's the weakest link in the chain that's going to be the risk. Mm. Here again, we're talking about Nazis in 2023. I don't, I mean, it's hard to know how, where the poison, where they get infected with the poison. Are they angry people who are just looking for someone to hate or what, what it is, what that sickness is? We have to look at the rise of hate crimes that's occurred in recent years over the last 20 years, but especially over the last five years in this country. Because in a lot of ways, white nationalists weren't just given a hall pass. In recent years, they were walking into the principal's office. I mean, look what happened with the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. There's been a lot of permissiveness and, and looking away and actually emboldening of white nationalist groups. And we're now seeing the effects as they develop savvier and savvier tactics. And look at Baltimore. It's a predominantly black city. So we are seeing the, the human effects and of, of this hatred that's been empowered at the, the highest levels of this country. I mean, they are being brought to justice now after January 6th. I would take your point that before that, they were given more than a hall pass and told that they were good people, even on January 6th. But they are being brought to justice. But that brings me to what's happened with these attacks on power grids? They haven't gotten to the bottom of, I mean, this one, the neo-Nazi one that you're describing, they've just figured out and arrested and charged. But Others are still mysterious. I mean, the Moore County uh, attack from Christmas Day, where 44,000 people were without power for days, uh, that remains unsolved. Uh, The thing that was the catalyst for this was Metcalf, California, back in 2013. And that was highly sophisticated. It became kind of the model that spawned in these dark corners of the Internet in the white nationalist world, saying, you know, we've really got to exploit this and, um, and bring it forward. We're going into a new era. There was a time not that long ago when you could get on an airplane with a ticket that had somebody else's name on it. You know, we're well past that. Uh, we've, we've, um, we, we've got a, a situation where uh, five or ten years from now, it will be unthinkable that we would li- leave so much of our grid exposed in this way. By and, the way, I think we also have to mention, we just spent in the other block, you know, the rise of anti-Semitism yeah. as a key function of these groups. This whole power grid thing is predicated, putting anti-Semitism to the side for a second, on the prolonged blackouts and the pressure on society will cause the race war. So, I mean, the, the thinking behind all this, we hate the Jews, we hate the blacks, we, you know, want to cause mayhem on a national level. Yeah, it's poison. Um, okay, thank you all very much. Just ahead, we're going to hear directly from officials at the Dallas Zoo who are worried that more of their animals may be in danger after a series of tampering incidents. And some have gone missing. We'll explain that. There's been a rash of animal tampering incidents at the Dallas Zoo, including the temporary theft of two emperor tamarind monkeys, and it has staff members on edge. While police have arrested and charged one young man, zookeepers are worried that more animals could still be in danger. CNN's Ed Lavendera explains. The high-flying Gibbons apes are oblivious to the fact that their little corner of the Dallas Zoo is a crime scene that's garnered worldwide attention. For the humans at the zoo, it's been a nearly month-long nightmare. They broke into the building. Harrison Edel is the Dallas Zoo's executive vice president of animal care and welfare. He's showing us where the mysterious break-ins, escapes, possible murder, and animal abductions occurred. It started here in this enclosure, which is home to four Langer monkeys. Edel says they found a four-foot-high cut in the wire mesh. 
We also noticed that some of the climbing structure inside the habitat was broken and it had literally collapsed, which made us think an animal larger than a langer had been in here. None of the monkeys escaped. A lot of us in, in animal care at the zoo have gone to some really dark places in our minds in the last month. You can almost picture whoever was in there chasing these guys down. It must have been rather frantic for the animals. I can only imagine how scary that is for, for a langer to have a person in their space who's trying to aggressively grab them. Around the same time and just two exhibits away, the clouded leopard habitat was cut open. A female leopard named Nova walked right out, setting off what the zoo calls a code blue. The SWAT team rolled out here that morning. Yeah. That's got to be terrifying. Yeah, I mean, SWAT team heard the word leopard and thought, leopard, leopard. High-tech drones were used to search for the 25-pound cat to no avail. That afternoon, two zoo employees standing about 30 yards away from Nova's habitat found her. One of them said to the other one, why is that squirrel so pissed off? And there's a squirrel in the tree barking. And down here in one of these cabinets, the leopard was curled up in a cabinet looking at them. Down here? There's the curator who said, why is the squirrel so upset? <laughs> Lisa Van Sleet, the zoo's mammal curator, called for help. And then a chase ensued. <laughs> but she's, she's safe and sound now. She's safe and sound now. At first we thought maybe isolated incident. Somebody tried something and failed. It was just the beginning. A lappet-faced vulture named Pin was found dead. Dallas police said the rare bird had been wounded. And then last week, two rare emperor tamarind monkeys were taken from the zoo. They made a huge cut in this wall of mesh right here in order to get into the habitat. The one-pound monkeys were found the next day in this abandoned house about 15 miles away. Zoo officials say the monkeys were unharmed. That last incident led police to arrest 24-year-old Davian Irvin. He's been charged with six counts of animal cruelty and two counts of burglary to a building. But investigators say he is not currently charged in connection to the death of the vulture. My name's Joe Exotic and this is Sarge. Wildlife experts say the fascination with exotic animals is fueled by shows like Tiger King and social media influencers, creating an underground world of exotic animals as pets. It's a massive problem. Um, the, the globally, the illegal pet trade is again dr driving many animals toward extinction. And we think of it oftentimes as a kind of other world problem. This is an opportunity to let people know that you know, animals need to be left alone in their homes. I'm gonna sound so old when I say this, but it doesn't help that social media influencers are showing kids that it's cool to have this thing in my house. You think that that might be one of the motivations here? Just that, that kind of influence? I do. I do. Ed Lavendera, CNN, Dallas. Okay, now here in New York City, zookeepers at the Central Park Zoo are desperate to recapture a Eurasian eagle owl named Flacco. Authorities say the bird escaped from its enclosure on Thursday after the exhibit was vandalized. The owl's been spotted around Central Park and out on nearby Fifth Avenue as well. But I think I may have solved this mystery. Look what was sitting on my backyard fence when I got home Friday night. I'm not kidding, guys. That was on my fence right there. That all. Now, I don't know if that's Flacco, but you can see it giving me side eye right there, as owls are known to do. <laughs> and what is that owl doing there? It's never been sitting on my fence when I got home. So... There is an owl story going on. Stay tuned for that. All right. Meanwhile, how much would you pay for a good seat at the movies? The nation's largest movie theater chain is now going to start pricing its tickets based on seat location. 
We're going to get reaction to all of this from our panel. AMC Theaters, America's largest movie chain, is changing the way it prices tickets. They will now be based on seat location. So seats in the front will be cheaper and seats in the middle will cost more. We're back with Errol Lewis, Emma Goldberg, and Scott Jennings. What's so funny about that, Scott? And seats next to my children will cost the most, (laughs) I'm afraid. (laughs) Or be free. (laughs) Um, Do you like this idea? Uh, I I think if you show up at the movie theater like I do with five people in tow and you end up sitting in the first row, it's pretty miserable. So I would pay a little more to sit higher, but also closer to a, an emergency exit because the a number of times I take kids to the bathroom during the movie <laughs> is a lot. And I don't want to, I feel like I don't want to disturb everybody else. So, Do you take your family to the movies? We go sometimes uh, when there's a big, one of these kids' big movies come out. I, it's Honestly, it's not as much as I'd like to. I love movie theaters. When I was a kid, getting to go to the theater, it was like, I mean, you talked about it for a long time. No, it was an event, for sure. But, I mean, I guess what, what I'm amused by, Earl, is that um, our seats, is it so crowded that this is going to work, this payment? I mean, when's the last time you had to sit in the front row of a movie? People aren't going to the movies in right. theaters right that's, now. That's the real point, is that they have, uh, they have squandered a great opportunity. They have made us go... And wait on two lines, a line to get into the theater, a line to wait for the food. You have to fight for the seat. It might be a crappy seat. And they charge us all the same thing. It's a pretty miserable experience. And a number of theaters have figured out that if you uh, let people pick their seat in advance, they'll pay 40%, 50%, 100% more just to be able to come in and have a decent experience. So you like this idea. You know what else theaters have figured out? If you serve booze, you're really popular. So a lot of have done that. Do you go to the movies, Emma? You know, it, it's hard when you have basically any movie that you want to watch from your couch and you can make your own snacks instead of spending your life savings on popcorn. It's it's hard, you know, to leave to leave home. And I, I feel for movie theaters. I mean, they've kind of had this triple punch of streaming, everyone having these massive screens in their homes, and then the pandemic. And I think during the pandemic, people had a kind of hierarchy of risk where it's like, okay, I want to take a risk to see my friends and maybe go to work, but to see Top Gun, I, I don't know. I mean, think of the arrogance. You know, you, you pay less for the bleachers, you know, if you go to a sporting event. You can get standing room seats to stand in the back of a jazz club or a, a Broadway theater. Somehow they thought everyone was going to pay full price for, like, the worst seats in the building. It did work for decades. But here's what uh, Elijah Wood, famous actor, has to say about this. The movie theater is and always has been a sacred democratic space for all. And this new initiative by AMC Theaters would essentially penalize people for lower income and reward for higher income. Errol? Um, Take out the bad seats. They don't belong in the theater in the first place. I I have to say, you go to one of these theaters... With these super awesome reclining mm-hmm. loungers, and those mm-hmm. lights go down, yeah. I would pay more to get a good nap. I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I have fallen asleep in the theater, and I never really regretted it. I woke up refreshed. I agree. Amazing. Fifteen dollar nap, fine with me. Ten dollars <laughs> all good. That's fifteen bucks you spent. Absolutely. <laughs> go in on that business. That's right. What we really need is a nap room. Um, guys, thank you very much. Great to spend time with you, and thanks so much for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues now. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 